Welcome to Coffee with Connections, powered by Centurion Wealth Management. I'm your host, Cooper Zimmerman, the Director of Communications here at Centurion. We're a fiduciary financial planning firm based out of McLean, Virginia. In this podcast, well, this is an exploration of ideas, insights from high-performance professionals, and commentary on all things investing, business, and entrepreneurship. But it's important to remember that this podcast is not investment advice. This series is purely educational and for entertainment purposes only. We encourage you to consult a professional before making any financial decisions. Now, let's get to this week's interview. Hey everybody, welcome back to a special episode of Coffee with Connections. This is one of our market updates episodes. So I host Jack Manley, the vice president, and he's a global market strategist on the JP Morgan Asset Management Global Markets Insights and Strategy team. You've probably heard Jack before. I've had him on the podcast and we've done live events with him, but I have Jack on here because he has decades of experience analyzing global markets and then communicating about them. So I asked Jack about inflation, about recessions, about the market, about interest rates, about the midterm elections, and what he's most optimistic about relating to the stock market and the economy. This is a fast-hitting, info-packed interview, and I think you're going to enjoy it. So let's get to it right now on Coffee with Connections, Jack Manley. All right, everybody. Jack, welcome back. How are you this morning? I'm doing well, Coop. How are you? I'm doing phenomenal. Thank you for jumping on. I know uh, you've got a busy week. It's a busy time. It's chaotic. Um, But I I did want to have you on because, you know, folks listening to this, our clients, folks that are in the Centurion Wealth Orbit, uh, recognize your voice. You've presented to us. You've jumped on the podcast before. uh, And you you always seem to capture what is going on very, very well. So we appreciate you having back on the podcast, first and foremost. Um, But I want to start with inflation, if you don't mind. June's report comes out Wednesday. Uh, We're recording this Monday morning, like we said, at 9 a.m. My question is not for you to predict the over-under on inflation, but more so, historically speaking, is there a place that investors tend to favor during high periods of inflation? It doesn't seem like it's maybe going away. So is there any place that you found or the research shows that people tend to flock to during high periods of inflation? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you're not asking me to predict where inflation is going, because <laughs> that's a conversation that we've just sort of stopped having, frankly. Right. You know, it's it, we've been burned on this. We've been talking about inflation being transitory for over a year at this point, and it just hasn't really been. And I think that's because there are just a couple of things that you simply cannot account for, you cannot predict that are driving inflationary pressures. You cannot account for China's COVID policy and uh, shutdowns that may or may not happen in that country. Um, you cannot pr- uh, account for what's going on in Ukraine with the war and the impact that that's having on commodity prices, but on prices more broadly. So trying to game out exactly where inflation is going to go is, is very challenging. Now, I will say uh, we do think inflation will subside. Now, there is a difference, right, between inflation subsiding and prices falling. Um, we're not talking about deflation here. We're not talking about prices coming down. We're just talking about the rate of change slowing to something a little bit more comfortable, down from 8.6%, which was the most recent reading, maybe to around 5.56% by the end of this year, cooling off into the threes or fours in the first half of, of next year. So I think that the, the inflation outlook is looking better. It's still not great. Um, but when it comes to how you protect yourself against something like this, 
it's it's a challenge, frankly. I mean, there are a couple of different ways that you you've done this historically speaking. Uh, gold has historically been a very good inflation hedge. Now it hasn't worked out as well recently uh, as it had in the past, but historically speaking, it has been a very good inflation hedge. There are also inflation linked fixed income securities, tips, uh, treasury inflation protected securities uh, that sort of link the coupon to what's going on in inflation that helps to keep you a little bit afloat. But frankly, the way I look at things right now is that your hurdle, right, is 7%, 8%, you need to get close to that or beat that. And really the only place to do that right now is in the equity market. And that's not going to be in terms of a dividend that you're necessarily going to be clipping. It's instead going to be looking at growth. But even in certain instances, you could be looking at dividends, right? There are certain pockets of the equity market that pass inflation on to the end consumer. Utilities are an example of that. Real estate investment trusts are an example of that. But if you're looking for the growth portion that I think could help to get you over that seven, eight, nine percent hurdle that we're trying to get over, well, that's where we start to lean into growthier parts of the equity market, parts of the equity market that have sold off considerably at the start of this year because money's not free anymore. Investors have to be more careful about where they're allocating. But, you know, I think about technology as being a long-term secular trend. I mean, the fact that we are recording this right now virtually, something that we probably would not have done two, three years ago is, I think, a testament to exactly that, how important technology has become in our lives. It's gotten beaten up recently. It's not going anywhere over the long run. So my big takeaway from all this is we probably want to start taking a little bit more risk in portfolios. So much damage has already been done. I think the upside potential is at least as important as the downside risk. I would frankly argue it's more important than the downside risk right now. I'm now going to say the R word in macroeconomics, which is recession. And again, not asking you to be Nostradamus here and predict anything, but what roadmaps or signs that you, you do look at to maybe try to indicate where this car is headed? Yeah, it's a really fair question, right? Because there is a lot of talk about recession right now, especially because for many of us, a recession is simply two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. And we already have a first quarter GDP print that came in at minus 1.6%, which means, you know, by that measure, we're halfway there. You add on top of that sentiment looking really, really poor, the equity market not doing so hot, right? We must be in a recession. But when we think about what a recession actually is, there is a technical definition to this. It's not two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. The National Bureau of Economic Research, the NBER, it's an organization within the government, they're the ones that call recessions. And what they're doing is they're looking for sustained declines in a number of different economic metrics. They're looking at incomes, they're looking at spending, they're looking at industrial production, they're looking at employment, and they want to see declines in these different metrics over a prolonged period of time. That defines a recession. And let's think about what's going on right now in each of those things. Manufacturing activity is still positive. We look at PMIs or purchasing managers indices to tell us that they're still in expansionary territory. Incomes are still rising. Spending is still up. And hey, we got an employment report last week that showed that the labor market is still adding jobs. We're not in a recession right now. You may hear some people tell you that we are. We're not in a recession right now. Does not mean that this economy is not slowing down. It certainly is. And it doesn't mean that there aren't elevated recession risks because of how complicated the macro backdrop are. A backdrop is there certainly are. But we're not in a recession right now. And my base case still is not recession. It is more possible than it was, say, six months ago. But if you think about these individual components in the economy, we have to remember that as long as we keep adding jobs, as long as incomes are rising, as long as we keep spending, we are technically not in a recession. 
not going to do anything to make you feel better about the current state of affairs. People aren't feeling too great about how things are working out right now. But from a purely economic perspective, that risk to growth, I think, is less than what you're hearing about in, uh, in the news. Jack, I don't know if you've heard this analogy before, but a really cool thing I've heard, the difference between the economy and the stock market is a gentleman walking a dog in a park, right? They're both generally headed in the same direction, but the dog might be ahead of it and it might bounce around the sidewalk a little bit differently than the person walking down the sidewalk will be, right? It's a cool analogy. I can't remember who I can credit that to, but but I want to transition to helping folks understand maybe the difference between the economy and the market, quote unquote, the market, the stock market, finance financial assets, because I think sometimes folks maybe get tripped up on it and easily so that the market is a forward looking indicator. We basically look at stock prices and we say, hey, this is what a company is valued at based on their future earning potential and profits, right? Can you help us understand maybe the difference a little bit between the economy and maybe more fundamental things versus financial assets in the market? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, I haven't heard that analogy, but I really like it. I think I'm going to borrow that from you. Please. And you'll, you'll get the credit for yeah, this one. Perfect, I don't know perfect. who gave it to you, but you're going to get credit for this one <laughs> when, I, when I use that in the future. You know, I the first time we kind of really came across this in terms of having really in-depth conversations was during COVID. It was back during 2020 when you were looking at an unemployment rate, right? That was at 14, near 15%, uh, but a, a stock market that had bottomed out and was now starting to rise. So people were looking at this and saying, you know, how can there be record levels of unemployment and GDP off 10, 15, 20%, and yet the stock market is already in recovery mode. And that's because, first of all, the stock market and the economy are not mirror images of each other. People tend to think of the stock market as a barometer for the economy. It just is not. I mean, they are tangentially related, of course, uh, but they are not one-for-one -one replicas. Uh, just as a very quick example, you think about weights within the S&P 500. What are the sectors that are most important to the stock market? Technology is the largest sector in the equity market. It accounts for roughly 30% of U.S. large cap market capitalization. It is not 30% of this economy in terms of jobs or in terms of output. It is a much smaller number. The bigger part of this economy is services, things like restaurants, things like retail, uh, airlines, hotels, those parts of the economy that did so poorly during COVID because we had mobility restrictions and you know, people were nervous about getting out and traveling and everything was closed down. It's why you could look at a stock market that was still doing very well, but an economy that looked like it was doing very poorly, right? So fundamentally, there is always going to be a disconnect between the stock market and the economy. But the other thing that you have to remember, and Coop, you mentioned this, is that the stock market is a forward-looking instrument, which means it looks at all the bad stuff that's on the horizon and it prices it into current prices. It's why we may not be in a recession just yet, but the equity market is off around 20% or so from its highs back in January. The way that I would interpret that is that even if the economic data start to get worse, even if we enter a recession in the coming months, the stock market has more or less already priced that in. It doesn't right. mean that we're due for another 20, 30% correction in the stock market if GDP starts to turn negative, if we start to bleed jobs in the, uh, in, in the labor market. So much of that concern is already priced into the equity market that I think this again comes back to that earlier point that I had made that we have to start considering upside potential more than downside risk, right? Because let's say the economy, let's, let's say we get a surprise negative GDP print, or let's say we get uh, a surprise contraction in the uh, in employment rate. 
Well, it's not good news, but it's not going to be particularly surprising to the equity market, which right now is more or less pricing in something of a recession. But let's say we surprise to the upside. Let's say we actually get a better than expected GDP print or a better than expected labor print like what we saw last week. Well, these are signs all of a sudden that things aren't as bad as what's been currently priced. And we may see a bounce in the equity market as a direct result of that. So it is important for investors to remember that just because the economy isn't doing well doesn't necessarily mean the stock market should not be doing well. And more to the point, the stock market prices in so much bad news because it is forward looking that as long as things maintain their course, the equity market uh, will very uh, likely not sell off another double digit number say over the next several months. I want to talk about consume, um, consumer confidence, right? It's a concept that I, I think has a technical term, much like you said, like the recession has a technical definition. But if you just kind of compile, I don't know where I saw this, but like credit card debt, all-time high, gas, food, basically all-time high, rents possibly are all-time high, mortgage rates, median home prices. Like there's, there's real pain in some areas of consumer, meaning they're stretching their dollar farther than they ever had to before. But then you can read a report that says consumer confidence is XYZ. How do you wrap your head around that? And what are some of the barometers that you're actually looking at to judge folks that are working every day in America and judge how difficult it is for their financial lives? So I think we have to remember that alongside all those bad things that you mentioned, you also have to point out that wage growth is running at a four decade high. People are making more money now than they ever made in their lives. Right. So, yes, you have higher prices that you're paying for rent and mortgages and food and fuel and whatever it may be. But you're also making a lot more money than you were last year or the year before or the year before that. It's not to say that this is an easy that this is easy for anybody. It's not. But this is not unchecked price appreciation without a corresponding increase in income. There has been a pretty impressive increase in income over the last uh, year or so. The other thing that's important to point out about consumer confidence, right, is that when you're calculating consumer confidence, it does not discriminate who you are, where you're from, what you do, how much you make, right? One person, one vote. Every voice matters in confidence. And when you think about what's going on in inflation right now, I mean, you mentioned a few of these problems that we're facing High, high fuel prices, high food prices. Well, the unfortunate reality of all this, right, is that everybody has to eat, literally. We all have to eat to survive. Most of us also have to commute one way or another. So most of us feel those higher fuel prices. But this is going to be disproportionately impacting the poorest Americans, right? If you make $25,000 a year and gas is $650 a gallon, that's a lot more of a problem than if you make $250,000 a year and gas is $650 a gallon. It's not to say that it's good for anybody, right? But it's a whole lot worse for one group than it is for the sure. other consider where this inflation has been concentrated. It's been concentrated in those quote unquote necessities, which means poor Americans are feeling it a little bit harder. And I mentioned that because as I said, it's one person, one vote in those confidence figures. So we see confidence numbers running at all time lows. I would imagine that at least a good portion of that is attributable to the fact that there are a lot of people out there that aren't making a whole lot of money that are really suffering from what's going on in terms of price appreciation. But at the same time, those poor 
for individuals. They may matter a lot for confidence numbers. They don't matter as much for consumption numbers. And if wealthier Americans, middle-class Americans are still able to spend, they're still able to drive consumption. It's one of the things that I think you should point out here that makes the point, well, yeah, maybe confidence is at a record low, but that doesn't necessarily mean that consumption is going to fall off. There may be a disconnect between these two numbers that typically run pretty parallel to one another because of how unusual this current environment is and because of what's gone on with inflation, because of how that's impacting a certain subset of the American population. So something to consider there, I think, on that front, that there is maybe more than meets the eye to those confidence numbers. Again, everybody's dealing with this, right? It's not fun for anybody. I don't want to downplay this problem, but it is, uh, uh, I think, a much bigger impact for those people that are really at the bottom of the mm. food chain, if you will, when it comes to earning potential. And uh, I think that's feeding through to confidence numbers. Switching gears again, I'm like a DJ that changes the song right in the middle of the song here, but uh, Jack, you do a phenomenal job. Switching gears to the Fed. If, mm -hmm. if you're deep on Fin Twitter, and what I mean what I mean by that is the financial news and commentators that basically live on the market, that live talking about the market on Twitter, the Fed has almost become a, a meme of sorts. And I say that with the you know utmost respect to an American bedrock institution, but they've taken some real heat on their strategy, on their word choice, on intransitory, transitory, transitory. Well, it turns out it's not transitory. And basically, I, I think a lot of people have had some real criticism for him. What do you think, like their action from here? Is this an evolving Fed? Are they more hyper conscious than ever with the way they communicate and talk maybe ever before because of the impact that we all live on, on their words of what they say? And where do you think they go from here in terms of interest rates? Yeah, the, the Fed is probably the most confusing thing that I'm dealing with right now. It's the hardest conversation to have because... Uh, I don't frankly agree with the way that they've been moving policy. And uh, I've been disagreeing with policy for the last six months and nothing's really changed, which is why I kind of run into this problem here. And, and you know, Coop, you mentioned it, but my like corny little joke, right, is that because of, uh, you know, fin, fin Twitter and because we all like, live on our smartphones and we all have, you know, constant access to information, everybody knows when the Fed moves, right? They may right. not know what the Fed is. They may not know what an interest rate is. They may not know what a basis point is, but they will be able to quote to you verbatim, oh, the Fed hiked interest rates 75 right. points the other day. They might not know what any of those words mean, but they know that it happened. And that's because your phone's getting blown up by you know uh, notifications from you know the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or whatever it is that you happen to read. All eyes are on the Fed now in a way that 20, 30, 40 years ago was simply not possible, right? We did right. not have technology that allowed for that to happen. That's one of the things that I think is making the Fed feel a lot more sensitive, uh, perhaps will uh, encourage them to move a little bit um, more, more cautiously. Mm -hmm. I think another important thing to remember here is that Jay Powell, who's the chairman of the FOMC of the Federal Open Market Committee, um, he is not an economist. He is an investment banker. He has a JD, so he's a lawyer by training, which means he is not dogmatic about monetary policy. He's not some guy sitting up in the ivory tower with a thesis advisor and a textbook where he flips to the chapter on inflation and says, OK, this is what I have to do to satisfy these high inflation problems. Right. He is not dogmatic. He governs by consensus. He does not rule by decree, which means, again, I think he is much more willing to move slowly, methodically allow monetary policy to take effect. Now, we can point to those two things 
they're not really being reflected in what's going on with interest rates right now, because as we know, the Fed hiked interest rates by 75 basis points a couple of weeks ago. I don't want to say it's a surprise to the upside, because by the time it happened, we all knew it was going to happen. But you know, a few weeks before that, we were still talking 50 basis points. A couple of months before that, we were still talking 25 basis points. The Fed is very aggressive right now. They're hiking more than they have since uh, the early 1990s. It's been almost 30 years since the Fed was this aggressive with policy. And I think we're going to get another 75 basis point hike uh, this month in July. That is more or less set in stone. But what I'm hoping, and I think that the Fed is going to realize this, is that this economy is naturally slowing down with or without the Fed's intervention, right? We have an enormous amount of fiscal drag. Washington's not printing any more money. We're not getting any more checks in the mail. That era is over, right? We, um, we also have to look at inflation that seems to be naturally cooling off. I mean, gas prices are high, but they're still, they're cheaper than they were about a month ago. Commodity prices more broadly are down 15, 20% from where they were a couple of months ago. Inflation should naturally cool with or without the Fed's intervention. And most important of all, I would make the argument that the inflation problem we're dealing with is sort of outside of the Fed's control. Right. The Fed could hike interest rates by 100 basis points tomorrow. It's not going to do anything to bring peace to Ukraine. It's not going to do anything to change China's thoughts about uh, its covid tolerance policy. Right. As I mentioned earlier, I think it was on that uh, on, on our first uh, discussion point. Um, you can't account for these things. Right. The Fed can't account for these things. And so all it can do is deal with a supply chain problem, supply side problem by shocking demand, by destroying demand, by making it irrelevant uh, because we don't want to spend. And you know that means a recession, that, that R word that you said that we don't really like to talk about. That's exactly right. what that means. Demand destruction means a recession. And I don't think the Fed wants to engineer a recession because of how much attention is being paid to it, because of how focused we are all uh, on, uh, on, on their policy. So my guess is that the Fed starts to ease off the break a little bit once we get into the back half of this year. That 75 basis point hike, more or less done, uh, done with. But once we move into, say, September, October, November, I think the rhetoric is going to change a little bit. I think the Fed, frankly, is going to under deliver relative to expectations. And that's going to be a good thing for bond yields because they'll fall, which means that prices hot will rise. And it'll be a good thing for the stock market because it means that that discount rate that you're applying to earnings growth looking forward is all of a sudden going to be a little bit lower. Valuations can be justified at a little bit higher. We may start to see a bottom uh, for, for equities. You brought up a good point, Jack. It made me think of something is that like market, like, we should have normal market cycles, right? There should be periods of growth and expansion and retraction and recessionary terms. That's just how markets generally work. My concern, my developing concern is that we live in a, and this kind of leads me to my next question. I have two more questions for you. Um, is that we live in a political environment now that's hyperbolic in terms of rhetoric and really just large scale. It feels like actions or like policy, you know, left and right. Like it feels like, like folks are baked into each side. I I'm convinced that possibly more more often than not we are we're, we think that we can financial engineer our way out of problems, whether that's through a restructuring of something or policy or you know the issuance of even just the stimulus check. That was unprecedented to send out four trillion dollars. I mean, you know, even five years ago, that'd be like whoa, like both sides of the table would be like that. That's pretty substantial, and that happened like a blink of an eye. And now all of a sudden, like that wouldn't be shocking if something in the future, if another administration thinks that they can do something similar. Right. So I guess my question around that is with the midterms coming up, 
what do you look at? Does policy have a real impact on the fundamentals of an economy, of the market? Um, a lot of folks ask us about left, right, you know, politicians, this and that, and how does that impact the market? What are your general thoughts, I guess, on policy in terms of like true politics and the economy? I would say in general, right, at a very high level, politics matter from a short-term perspective. They matter a whole lot less from a long-term perspective. I mean, you cannot argue, right, that tax policy and spending policy will not impact an economy. They certainly will. But what we have seen over the long run is that red, blue, mixed doesn't matter. Over the last 100 years or so worth of data, you see that the economy grows during any of those permutations. The stock market grows during any of those permutations, right? There is not a clear winner or loser in terms of policy and how that impacts uh, financial assets or how that impacts the economy. And that is because I think, frankly, at the end of the day, we are a very, um, we are a resilient country, right? And we are an innovative country and we are able to uh, shift course and, and change the way that we approach things based off of new tax policy or based off of new spending policy. We take advantage of whatever those conditions are. We learn to navigate around the risks. It is something that makes us American, frankly, and it's something that we've been you know, known for for almost 250 years at, at this point. So over the short term, I think it has a big you know, impact on sentiment because, oh God, my taxes are going up or, oh God, they're sending out more, more stimulus checks. But over the long run, the economy still does well. The stock market still does well. It's not an end of the world type situation. Now, specifically speaking, uh, I would say that, you know, I, I don't want to predict anything in terms of where the, the elections are going in November, but it seems pretty clear uh, that the uh, Democrats are going to lose their majority um, in either the House or the Senate or both. And when that happens, you have mixed government. And when you have mixed government, it means that the crazier sides of either party are not really able to influence policy, right, because you have those checks and balances in place. So I'm not expecting any real, real volatility around the November election. Now, let's say, though, for example, we have a Georgia runoff surprise situation like what we saw uh, a couple of years back. Nobody thought that was going to go into January. Nobody thought that both Democrat politicians would win that election. And yet here we are. Right. That was a big source of volatility because it was a source of uncertainty. Markets hate uncertainty, whether it's related to you know war in Ukraine or domestic politics or COVID. COVID or whatever it may be, uncertainty is bad news. But as long as we have some sort of reasonably clear idea about what the political landscape is going to look like, and again, we're anticipating mixed government on that front, uh, I don't think this is going to be a particularly big source of volatility. And I think that investors right now should welcome that mixed government because it means that big changes to tax policy, big changes to uh, spending policy are extremely unlikely uh, over the next two and a half years or so. I'm an optimistic person, Jack. I think you are too. Last question is, what are you optimistic about? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so there are a couple of different ways that we can take this. I mean, I, I already mentioned earlier uh, that uh, I do think we need to consider upside risk more than downside potential um, because so much bad news has already baked in. And generally speaking, things uh, aren't as bad as, uh, as, as we're afraid of. But another thing, and this is kind of a funny answer to this question, but I do think it's it's worth mentioning is that, you know, we have all of us, it's it's and it's it, it's just a sort of a trait of being human, right? Is we have very selective short-term memories. 
um, particularly about bad things, right? And the last recession we got was the worst recession we've seen since the Great Depression, if you ignore what happened uh, in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And the recession before that was the worst recession we had seen since the Great Depression, right? So you are looking at two consecutive recessions that were long and deep and painful. You may hear some New York City traffic in the background. I apologize for that. It We're adds to it. This real time, right? <laughs> it adds uh, to it. <laughs> life, life gets in the way. Um, but it is important to remember that that's not what a normal recession actually looks like, right? Recessions are not normally that long. They're not normally that deep. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't think that the base case is a recession. But if we do get a recession, it's going to be a short one. It's going to be a shallow one. It's going to be a technical one because there are no parts of this economy that are fundamentally out of whack with where they are supposed to be. And so the reason I'm optimistic about this, right, is that if we do get a recession, first of all, that should help to cool off the labor market a little bit, which I think would not be a bad thing, especially from a wage growth perspective. It would certainly help to cool off some of what's going on in the inflation side of things. But I think it would also help to reset expectations about what a recession actually is. Think about all the anxiety that we're feeling right now because, ooh, a recession may be on the horizon. Well, if we manage to get a recession and we come through it a couple months later and we say, yeah, that actually wasn't so bad, maybe it makes us more comfortable for future market downturns. It allows us to be a little bit more uh, at peace, if, if you will, with our portfolios and how they respond to shocks to the economy. So uh, I am an optimist just like you. Coop, certainly. Um, I think you have to be uh, uh, when you're thinking about the U.S. in particular. You never want to bet against the U.S. economy. You never want to bet against the U.S. stock market, especially over the long run. And I think if we keep our heads down, uh, we remember that it's about time in the market. It's not about time in the market. We have to remember that volatility is a normal part of what it means to be invested. We have to remember that diversification works in our benefit, uh, to our benefit rather, uh, in situations like this. I think we're going to be just fine. We're going to move through this. Uh, this too shall pass, and we'll be on to greener pastures, uh, I think, before anybody knows it. Jack Manley, Vice President, Global Market Strategist on the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Global Markets Insight Strategy Team. Jack, once again, thank you for all the insight. You do a great job, and we appreciate you here at Coffee with Connections. Thanks very much. It's always a pleasure. <laughs>